0: All right, now let's take out our Bibles together. And if you will, turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 1. Mark, chapter 1 today. Technically, last week we started the book of Mark, but today is chapter 1, verses 1 and following. Today is the official introduction to the book. It is always exciting for me. It's a joy to start a new book of the Bible with you and to begin a new journey through another book of the Bible. Uh, If you come consistently and you hear these sermons consistently, you're going to start, start to get a feel for this book. I hope many of you have experienced this with the other books that we've done before. You get a feel for this particular book of the Bible and the nuances of it and the contours of it, if you will. In the time that I've been here at Columbia Christian, we've preached through a number of books, but never have I done one of the Gospels. And so this is kind of new territory for me as I'm coming to you as your minister. Uh, but this is, where, this is where it's at, if, if you will. This is where all the action is. This is the heart of the Bible. This is the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, before we even begin to read our entire text and go through it and try to bring out for you what's in there, I want, I want you to see verse 1 right at the beginning. Verse 1 it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might hear that term as we refer to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but in the first century, no one would have understood that term in that way, because the gospel, the very word, means good news. Good news. And so, There's a real sense in which this isn't Mark's gospel, he's just reporting on the gospel. There is one gospel, as we sing, and this is it. He's reporting the good news. The gospel is good news, and that's exactly what Mark is doing here in this book. He's reporting the good news. This is not a persuasive letter. This is not a book of poetry like you might find in the Psalms or something. It's just an account of events that happened. One thing you're going to notice about Mark is that he is very efficient with his reporting. He's very efficient. This is a much shorter gospel than the others. It moves a whole lot quicker. Sometimes you're going to see as we go through Mark, sometimes you're going to see only a few verses given to something that seems like a really, really big event, a really big deal, and he just moves right on. That's the way Mark does his gospel. There's not a lot of explanation, or interpretation going on, he leaves it up to us to, to pull out and to consider what we are to take away from these events that he is reporting. But, in verse 1, Mark makes a claim. In verse 1, Mark's not just reporting. In verse 1, he makes a claim. This is the only time in the entire book that we're going to hear from Mark himself about what he thinks of Jesus. Because all the other times in the book, we're going to hear from other people. Throughout the book of Mark, you're going to hear what other people think about Jesus. You're going to hear from people like Peter. You're going to hear from the Pharisees. You're going to hear from the crowds, what they think about Jesus. You'll even hear from demons, what they think about Jesus. But here, we're going to hear from Mark himself, right in verse 1. And what does he say? What does Mark think about Jesus? He says, he is the Christ And then he says he is the son of God. What he is reporting on is the gospel of this man Jesus. Who is the Christ. Christ is not just Jesus' last name. Do you know that? It's not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the one that everyone was waiting for. The Jews had their Old Testament scriptures. That prophesied the coming of the Messiah. The coming one who would save his people. And Usher in the kingdom of God. This is he. This is who it is. He is the Christ. And then Mark says he is the son of God. This man Jesus is not just another man. He is different than all other human beings. He is the son of God. God sent him here. He is divine. He is human, yes, but he is divine. He is God in the flesh. And so, having said all of that, Now I want to lead you into the text that we're going to look at today, which is verses 1 through 8. So let's read our text, verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, and make his path straight. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, as you can see from our text, the focus of this initial passage in Mark is actually on John the Baptist. And so we're going to take a look at John the Baptist today and what can we learn from him? Well, I want to pull out three different things from our text, according to, or as it pertains to John the Baptist, if you will. Number one, we're going to look at John's calling from God. And then after that, we're going to look at John's baptism for sinners. And then finally, John's example for us. John's calling from God, John's baptism for sinners, and John's example for us. First, John's calling from God. I want you to see that from our text today. And as we look at that, I want to take a step back and ask, who is this guy? Who is John the Baptist? Well, Mark introduces him by using Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy, verses 2 and 3 right there, if you see those. Often in our Bibles, they will be indented because he's quoting from the Old Testament. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And he actually includes a portion of a quotation from Malachi as well here too. But he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, this is doing more than just quoting from the Old Testament. I want you to see this. It's doing more than just quoting from the Old Testament. Mark is using those Old Testament quotations to take our minds back to times in the Old Testament When God sent an angel before the people to prepare the way for his people, to prepare his will for his people. There were times in the Old Testament where he would send his angel ahead. Here it says messenger, but messenger and angel have the same Greek word behind them. The same Greek word can be translated messenger or angel. And I believe Mark is intentionally alluding back to the Old Testament times where God would send his angel ahead of his people to do his will or to prepare his will. We might think of times like Genesis 24. Abraham is seeking a wife for his son Isaac and Abraham talks to his servant and he says, I want you to go back to my people, back to my homeland, and I want you to find a wife for my son Isaac from there. And then the text says, Genesis 24, that God was going to send his angel before that servant to set things up according to God's will. And lo and behold, when the servant arrives, the very first woman he meets is Rebecca, God's choice for a wife for Isaac. We might think of Exodus 23, after God delivered the Israelites from Egyptian slavery by the ten plagues and after he took them through the Red Sea, God tells them that he's leading them to the promised land and that he will send his angel ahead of them as they journey to that place to guard the way for them and to safely bring them to the place he promised them. And so this is a category that the Israelites would have understood. God sending an angel or a messenger, if you will, ahead. Angels are often messengers in the Bible. Think Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus. But in the same way, God sends his chosen messenger before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. And it's John the Baptist. That's who John the Baptist is. He is God's chosen messenger to go a little bit ahead of Jesus and prepare the way for him. John was born just a little bit before Jesus. John came out in public and started his ministry just a little bit before Jesus did. And his entire life was set up for the purpose of preparing the way for Jesus. John was actually set apart from birth. We learn in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was in the womb. From the time he was in his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. We are not filled with the Holy Spirit until we are baptized into Christ. He was from the very time he was in the womb. It's amazing. God chose John for a very specific purpose. And that was his calling his entire life to prepare the way for Jesus And to point people to him. And one of the things I want to show you today is just as John spent his entire life pointing people to Jesus. So we are to as well. We are to spend our entire lives pointing people to Jesus. Now John seems quite eccentric. If you notice verse 6. What a weird guy this is. He was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. He was extraordinarily different from your normal person back then. And part of that was God intentionally setting him apart. Part of that was God drawing people's attention to this eccentric, weird guy preaching a different message than the one they've always heard from the religious leaders. He was not like any of the the Pharisees or the scribes or the teachers of the day. He was totally different, and God did that on purpose to draw people's attention specifically away and out toward him. But there is more here than just telling us how different he was than everyone else. I want to show you what this is actually doing. And I want to show you, starting with Malachi 4.5. Now, I'm going to reference a couple other scriptures here. Don't worry about turning to them. They'll be on the screen behind me. You just park it right there and mark. But follow along with me. I want to show you why verse 6 is a little bit more important than you might realize on the surface. Malachi 4.5 says this. It's the second to last verse in our entire Old Testament. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. God says he's going to send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Elijah's going to come. And so what happened was, because that's a promise from the Lord in the very end of our Old Testament, what happened was people started expecting an appearance of the well-known miracle-working prophet Elijah before the Messiah would come. People started saying "Before, before the Messiah can come, Elijah has to come. There has to be some kind of Miraculous resurrection appearance of this Old Testament prophet Elijah. He lived 800 years before Jesus. If you remember your Old Testament, you might remember Elijah from that, that great confrontation with the prophets of Baal where he called down fire from heaven and God actually sent fire down and burned up the sacrifice that was right there. That's 1 Kings 18. God did all kinds of other miracles through this prophet Elijah. But if you remember, he comes up multiple times in the New Testament, specifically because of this prophecy. If you remember Jesus asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they reply, well, some say, Lord, some say you're Elijah. Why would they say that? Malachi 4.5, right? At one point, the disciples asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, those scribes said that because Malachi 4.5. But then Jesus tells the disciples, Matthew 17, starting in verse 12, Jesus says, I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then it says, then the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Malachi 4-5 prophecy of Elijah. Elijah must come first. But what they didn't realize was it wasn't actually going to be Elijah. It was a way of saying one like Elijah, a a second Elijah, John the Baptist was going to come first, and then the Messiah. Now here's the connection back to verse 6. Let me show you this. Back to verse 6. It says John was clothed with what? Camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. Okay? Get that in your head. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 1, messengers come to a king named Ahaziah. And Ahaziah has sent those messengers out to inquire from a false god whether or not he will die from a sickness. From a false god. He's inquiring from a false god. Not God, god in heaven. A false god. An idol. And the, the messengers come back to him and they say, uh, King Ahaziah, a, a man met us and gave us a message for you. And Ahaziah says, What did, what did he look like? And then they answered him, 2 Kings 1.8, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And the king said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. This is intentional what Mark is doing right here. He uses the exact same words from 2 Kings chapter 1, that John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. He is the Elijah that preceded the Lord Jesus. It's a wonderful connection in your Bible if you're willing to see and to to keep in mind those connections. Mark is intentionally telling us this is the Elijah who was to come. So, all of this to say, who was John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the new Elijah, preparing the way for the Lord. He was chosen by God to live his entire life preparing the way for Jesus and pointing people to Jesus. Now, we need to spend a moment talking about John's baptism, his baptism for sinners. Because the way that John began to prepare the way for Jesus was, he started a ministry way out in the wilderness, dunking people underwater. What was that about? What was he doing? Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. What's he doing? Well, first of all, he's in the wilderness, and that's intentional. Remember how, how different we said he was from the religious leaders of the day? Well, he's, he's so intentionally different He looks different, he dresses different, he eats different, and he starts his ministry out in the wilderness. He doesn't set up in a synagogue, he doesn't go into the city of Jerusalem, it's out in the wilderness. You have to come out from that city. You have to come out from that religious center to go to this man and his ministry. We will learn as we study the rest of the book of Mark that the religious leaders of that day had become corrupt and ungodly, They could not be trusted. And so John's ministry and his message was a stark and decisive break from the religious establishment of the day. He was intentionally breaking away from the religious establishment of the day because it had gotten corrupt. They were leading people away from God, not to him. And so John's so different, he starts out way out in the wilderness, and you've got to come all the way out It's almost like a symbolic leaving the religious establishment of the day for this new ministry and this new message and this weird man proclaiming it. But his baptism, what's he doing with his baptism? It says John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Sounds much like what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. When he preaches and the people cry out, what should we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says a little more. We'll get to that here in just a second. But coming out to be baptized by John was a way of people saying, I'm sorry for my sins. I want to turn away from them. I want to be forgiven of them. I want to live for God. They were going out to John and they were saying those things. They were making a decision to repent and turn to God and turn away from their old ways and, and plead with God for forgiveness. Now, this was the first time that anyone had ever introduced this idea that you need to make a decision to turn away from your sin and turn toward God for forgiveness. For us, this is this is... All we know, right? We hear this every single week. This is, this is Christianity all the time for us. For them, it was brand new. It was unheard of. It was unlike anything anyone had ever heard. Because up until that point, the Jews, well, they, they would say, we're right with God simply because we were, we're Jews. We're right with God because of our nationality, because of our heritage. And, and we follow all the Old Testament rituals, and that's what makes us right with God. But here comes John saying, no, you need to make a decision to turn away from sin and to confess it before God, and then he will forgive you. It's completely different. It was radical. Wash away your sins, John says, not with sacrifices, but with baptism. Baptism. Now, we learn later in the New Testament that this was not Christian baptism as we know it today. It's a little bit different There are are two main differences from John's baptism and Christian baptism as we know it today. First, we are baptized into the name of Jesus. When John was baptizing at this point, the name of Jesus wasn't even a thing. There might have been people named Jesus, but there wasn't any Jesus Christ, Lord of all the earth, right? Savior. It wasn't like that yet. And so today we're baptized into the name of Jesus, that's one difference. Second, there is no mention here or anywhere of John's baptism having anything to do with the Holy Spirit coming to you. In fact, he says in verse 8, I've baptized you with water, he, the one coming after me, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now I think that's a figurative use of baptize right there. But there's no mention of the Holy Spirit being received by anyone who went out to John. And got that baptism today when we are baptized, as Peter says at Pentecost, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at our baptism. So there's a couple main differences between John's baptism and Christian baptism as we know it today. In fact, in Acts, Paul runs into some disciples who have only received the baptism of John. And they don't even know about the Holy Spirit. And Paul baptizes them into the name of Jesus, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. They received Christian baptism at that point. But notice in both, and notice in John's baptism here, the central element of repentance. A baptism of repentance. John does not come preaching, God loves you, so just believe in God's love. It's not his message. John does not come saying, stop condemning yourself. You need to embrace God's love for you. No, he preaches the exact opposite. The exact opposite. The message is you stand under God's condemnation because of your sin. Your sin has landed you under the condemnation of a righteous and holy God who, by the way, happens to be the ruler of the universe. Repent, he says, and turn from your sins and come to God for forgiveness. Or, if you don't, you won't be forgiven. If you don't come to God for forgiveness, you won't be forgiven. You will remain under his condemnation. We need to hear that message today. Every single one of us, we need to hear that message today. The good news of the gospel is, is only good news because it starts with us being condemned under God for our sin. We need a way out of this. The good news of the gospel is not everything's great. Everything's wonderful. There's a promise of hope for every single person who who wants it at all. That's not the message. The message is your sin is deadly serious. Your sin is... Is going to send you to hell if you don't do something about it. That's the message of the gospel. The gospel message is not about your own great worth in the eyes of God. It is not about how you just need to stop feeling bad about yourself and let God love you. The gospel starts with repentance. Why do we need to be saved? Because without Jesus, our sins have earned us the condemnation and wrath. Of God. Without Christ, you are facing down a judgment day and an eternity that I cannot even begin to describe to you how awful it will be. Every person on earth who has come of age spiritually is under the wrath of God. By default, you stand condemned by God himself until you come to Jesus repenting of your sin and plead with God for forgiveness. And so I ask every single person in this room today, I ask every single person listening some other place today, have you come to Jesus for forgiveness? Have you come to Jesus for forgiveness? If you haven't, You are right now under the condemnation of God. And what awaits you is hell. Have you come to Jesus for forgiveness? You have an opportunity today to do something about this. You have an opportunity today. But can you imagine the weeping and the despair at the judgment day Of people who stand before Christ and never came to Him for forgiveness, but they can remember back. They can remember back to multiple times in their life where they had an opportunity, they had a chance, and they resisted. They passed it up. They said, Not right now. Can you imagine the despair in those people's hearts and minds? Remembering the chances they had and they passed up. They didn't take the chance. Do something about your eternal life while you still can. Today might be the last chance that you have to repent. Think about that. Today, right here, might be the very last chance that you have to repent of your sins and to receive forgiveness. You might not have any more days left. Jesus might come back today. These are all very real possibilities and none of us thinks it's going to happen. It always happens to other people. That's always somebody else who dies early in life. That's always somebody else that that happens to. Jesus has never come back yet in my lifetime, so it's not going to happen today. Friends, don't fool yourselves. Don't be foolish. This could be the last chance that some of you have to repent of your sins. Don't be that person standing before Christ at Judgment Day, remembering the chances you had and you passed them up. I desperately don't want that to be you. Now, finally, we've seen John's calling from God. We've seen his baptism for sinners. And now we, we want to see his example for us. John's example for us here in the text. Look at verse 7. Notice John's humility in verse 7. His humility. It says he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John says I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. That's who this man is. Now think about this. If Jesus came up to one of us and asked us to untie his sandals for him, that would be an extraordinary honor, would it not? For those of us who know Christ and love him, that would be an amazing honor. If Jesus asked me to bend over and untie his sandals for him, what a blessing that would be. What an honor. And John knew we are not even worthy of that. We are not worthy enough to do that. It is truly amazing that Jesus has asked us to do Anything in his kingdom. It's an absolutely amazing act of undeserved grace that he has asked us to do anything for him. If Jesus wants us to clean toilets for his glory and for his kingdom or for his body, the church, that should bring us to tears that we would be considered worthy enough to do that for him. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the disciples left the Sanhedrin after being beaten for their preaching. And it says as they left, they were thanking God and rejoicing. Why? Because they had been counted worthy enough to suffer for the name of Jesus. They considered it an honor and a privilege to be beaten for the gospel. Church history tells us That when Peter was sentenced to death, he was sentenced to be crucified. Crucified. But he requested that he be crucified upside down. Why? Because he did not feel he deserved the honor of dying in the same way as his Lord and teacher. We must have this humility, brothers and sisters. John's example is for us. We must have this humility. We must cultivate humility this humility. Cultivate humility by spending time to get to know this man, Jesus, and what he has done for you. And as you do, you will begin to see his glory, but you also begin to see yourself in a proper light. You see, almost all of our sin comes from an an outsized sense of our own importance, an outsized sense of who we are. We don't see ourselves accurately. But when you see Jesus, when you get to know Jesus, you begin to see yourself accurately. You'll come to see yourself as unworthy of him. And it produces humility. Let's think of Peter again. After the miraculous catch of fish where Jesus actually called Peter to follow him, Peter sees that, immediately connects it to the glory of the the man in front of him, Jesus And he falls down at Jesus' feet and he says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. Because when you see the glory of Christ, you see your own unworthiness. And so if you want to be humble, like John, whom Jesus said was the greatest among those born of women. If you want to be humble like John, then seek to know Christ. And to see Christ in his glory. And when you do, you will see yourself for what you really are. It will create and produce humility inside of you. Now notice also the way John points people to Jesus. He points people to Jesus and away from himself. It's what he's doing in verses 7 and 8. Talking about the one who comes after him. Talking about Jesus' baptism. It is not about John. John's ministry, John's message is not about him. In fact, his entire life is all about Jesus and telling people of the one who is coming after him. If you remember in John's gospel, the gospel of John, one day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And he cried out for all to hear and he pointed at him and he said for everybody to hear. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That moment was a microcosm for John's entire life. That's what he did. That's who he was. He pointed people to Jesus. That's who you need to be focusing on, not me. John had a popular ministry. John had a lot of people coming out to him. But when people started leaving his ministry and going over to Jesus, people would come up to ask him, What, what do you think about this? Are you, are you upset about this? And he says, Upset. This is exactly the point. This is exactly what I've always wanted. For people to leave me and forget about me and go to him. That's my whole life. He later spoke of his role, John the Baptist speaks of his role, as that of a best man at a wedding. The best man at a wedding. What is the role of the best man at the wedding? I'll tell you what it's not. The role of the best man is not to upstage the groom. The role of the best man is not to draw everyone's attention to him away from the bride and groom. No, the role of the best man is to point people over there to the bride and groom to support them in their day, to make sure that they have a wonderful day and everyone else sees them as the stars of the show. And if if the best man does something other than that, he's he's not fulfilling his duties. John says he is the best man at a wedding, pointing people to the groom. In John 3, verse thirty. John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. You want a life verse? Memorize John 3.30. It's not hard. That should be our lives. That should be what defines us. He must increase, I must decrease. People forget about John Davis and love Jesus more. It's exactly what we want. Oftentimes, people talk about how they want to be remembered when they are gone. want to leave a legacy. I want people to remember me for this. What if you died? And years after your death, nobody had any, any thoughts of you. Nobody even remembered who you were. But because of you, people loved Jesus and people came to Jesus. Would that be okay with you? Would you be okay with that? We need to be cultivating hearts where that's exactly what we'd be okay with. We want that. We must point people to Jesus in the same way that John did. Our very lives should be about pointing people to Jesus and away from ourselves. We have been taught by our culture to draw attention to ourselves in so many ways. Our culture is constantly preaching at you and saying, "Draw attention to yourself. You need to find your self-worth in how many people look at you and follow you and see you and admire you." The way that that our culture tells us to dress is all about drawing attention to us. The way that we talk, the stuff we acquire, it's all about drawing attention to ourselves. Why do you think our phones have a camera on the front of them? Because it's all about drawing people's attention to me and what I am doing. Facebook, Instagram, it's all about drawing attention to ourselves. We have to, because of the prevalence of this in our culture, we have to intentionally fight against that and become people who do the opposite, who point people away from ourselves and to Jesus. If I were to ask all of us, take a survey, who is the best at doing this? Who is the best at pointing people away from Jesus? We'd all have our ideas, But if God were to reveal to us who the best is at this, I think we'd all be completely surprised. Why? Because the people who point people to Jesus and away from themselves, they don't draw attention to themselves. So we we don't know anything about what they're doing. We don't know who they are. We don't think about them. We think about Jesus. Those are the people who are the best at it. If God lets us in on that in heaven, we're going to be surprised at who that was because they weren't drawing attention to themselves. And so ask yourself this morning, Ask yourself, instead of how can I draw attention to myself in all of these ways, ask yourself, how can I be like John the Baptist and point people away from me and to Jesus? What would it look like to to have that in your head every time you bought clothes? The, The clothes that you wear, the shoes that you wear, the way that you look, and the way that you present yourself. How can you do that not to draw attention to yourself, not to, for people to look at you and say, that person looks really nice, but to draw attention to Jesus. How can we do that? For some, it might look like, you know, okay, I'm wearing, I'm wearing T-shirts. I had, a, I had a guy in college who was a very good friend, and every single day he wore a T-shirt with some message on it about Jesus. That's the way he did it. Right? But you don't have to do it this way. For some of us, this might mean I, I need to dress modestly instead of in a way that draws people's attention to myself. How do I need to fix myself up? How can I present myself in a way that points people to Jesus? Or let's think about other 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 areas of our lives. The, the stuff that we have. What what phone should I have? Or should I have the phone that I have? What what house should I buy? What what car should I drive? How can those things point people to jesus i 'll tell you one really easy way to do it if you live below the level that other people know you can live at, then you will have an opportunity to point people to Jesus because they will begin to ask why don 't you have a nicer car why, why don 't you have a nicer house you can and and in america it 's only a, a ridiculous illogical person that wouldn't live up to the means that they can live at. So if you don't, why? What what are you doing? It's an opportunity to point people to Jesus. It's just one way. This is all between you and the Lord. I can't tell you how to do this. But if you live your life in this way, it just changes so much that you constantly ask yourself, how can I not draw attention to myself? How can I point people away from myself and to Jesus? What about how I work at my job? What about my online activity? Whatever it is, he must increase, I must decrease. That's got to be our, our anthem. That's got to be our lives, our motto. He must increase, I must decrease. How can we live like that? How can we be like John the Baptist whom Jesus said was the greatest man ever born of women? And yet Jesus followed that up with this. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is even greater than he. That's a good place for us to stop and pray. So each week here at Columbia Christian, we offer a time right after the sermon where we pray individually, silently, because we call for a response to God's word. And that response does not just mean those who walk down the aisle. Every single one of us has to respond to the Lord. Respond to what he has just laid upon our hearts. And so we give this time in prayer for you to do that. Go to the Lord. Deal with him. Do business with God, if you will. Because of what he has just spoken to you, speak back to him from your heart. After we have a few moments of responsive prayer, silently, we'll come back together. And then we'll have a time where anyone who might need to respond to God's word publicly can do so, but right now let's pray for a few moments.